Well, if you have your Bible, please turn with me in that Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, then you can get one of the black Bibles on the end of each pew. In that Bible, it should be on page 953. Which is kind of funny because it's just you'd go to the end of Romans where we, we finished up last time and just turn the page. And you would think that we're just going straight to 1 Corinthians, but that's not what we're doing. Um, what we're doing is a, a break between books of the Bible. And so the, uh, the, the best way for us to consume God's Word is as God has laid it out, going through books of the Bible. And then occasionally when we're uh, in a, a, a break time like this, we may do something like we're doing right now, which is a short series on some doctrines. Uh, you might call it a topical series, you might call it a doctrinal series, whatever you want to call it, but we're going to take five weeks right now to look at the doctrines of grace before then on that, uh, that well, I guess right after Easter, we'll go into 1 Samuel. Uh, so you can start reading First and Second Samuel if you'd like to do that anytime, obviously. But right now, we are going to set our minds on these great doctrines that we call the doctrines of grace. So let me just read for us this verse that's going to be our main verse for today. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. It says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So, all Christians, all believers in Christ would agree with two things. One is that sin is is deadly. Sin is deadly. The wages of sin is death. We've sinned against a holy God. We deserve to die. We deserve an eternity in hell. That's what we are on our own in our sin. We agree with that as Christians. Anybody who doesn't agree with that hasn't come to understand Christ at all. And the second thing that we agree on as, as all Christians is that God gives sinners eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. You need to believe. Whoever believes has eternal life, says Jesus. And we all who have come to believe know that. But there is a question that comes up that sometimes Christians disagree about, which is, how does an unbelieving sinner become a believing saint? How does someone go from being lost in their sin to now found, to now believing in Christ? Is it man who does it? Or is it a work of God that does it? Man, if he were going to answer this himself, wants to just jump up and say, it's man who does it. I know it. I know it myself. I know that I have will, free will. I know that I chose this. I know that I do that. I'm working hard. I'm going to do it. Uh, man just wants to take credit in some way. What the Bible tells us is that it is 100% a work of God. It is all of grace. And that's what this is about. This is, this is talking about what we call the doctrines of grace. If you're following along on the back of your bulletin, which I, I hope you will be following along on the back of your bulletin today, just to, to kind of tell you what these doctrines are that we're going to be in for the next five weeks, they're usually laid out with the acronym TULIP. T-U-L-I-P. It's not the best acronym for it. There's, 
There's a couple of terms that, that if you use more specific, more accurate terms, then it wouldn't really come out to say tulip. It, it's not laid out in the same order that the canons of Dort first laid them out in the 1600s. But you know what? We have this term, and it's easy to remember. It's been pervasive among those who believe these things for about 100 years now. So we're just going to stick with it. Tulip. Easy to remember. That's how we're going to do it. Those T-U-L-I-P stand for total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Now, I marked on your outline that L, there's actually a better term for limited atonement. It's called particular redemption. I, there's a better term for irresistible grace. It's called effectual calling. But you know what? It just wouldn't make the flower name if you used those. So it's an easy thing to remember. You can ask any of the students in here who were at youth night, and they can sing you a little song about it. You can ask Esther. I just decided not to sing it now because I'm too dignified. (laughs) But these are the doctrines. These five doctrines, we call them the doctrines of grace. They're precious to us as a church. Uh, In some places, they're controversial. Praise God, they're not controversial here. So if you hear me talking about these as though they're not controversial, that's why. It's because we just love these things here. And they have been loved. These doctrines have been loved here all the way back to the year 1850 when the church was founded. And in the founding documents of the church, they wrote these kinds of doctrines in uh, that man was totally depraved, that all who have ever been or will be brought to repentance and faith in the gospel were chosen in Christ to salvation before the foundation of the world, according to 1 Peter 1, 2, Ephesians 1, 4, etc., etc. This is, this is something that is a doctrine, or a set of doctrines, I guess you could say, that our church was founded on. It's a set of doctrines that is historical to the Reformation. It is sometimes called Calvinism, which is in some ways accurate, because did John Calvin teach these doctrines? Well, yes, he did. He did. Although in the very first edition of his uh, systematic theology book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, he really didn't emphasize them very much at all. It was only after people started attacking these things that he started to emphasize them more, and they, they started to get attacked more even after he was dead. And there was this guy named Jacob Arminius who, who thought that well, actually, God's decision to save somebody is based on God's foreknowledge about, not foreknowledge as the Bible talks about it, but this man-made idea of foreknowledge that, well, maybe it's God looked down the tunnel of time to see who's the kind of person who would believe. And that's how God decided who to save, the kind of person who would believe. And, and he didn't, this Arminius guy, he didn't really get to systematize his beliefs very much. He died a little younger than he probably planned to, as some of us probably will also. You never know. But it was his followers who came, and they called themselves the Remonstrants, which just makes me so glad that Twitter wasn't around back then. Can you imagine what they would have been like on, on there? But they got together and they made a five-point system of Arminianism, denying essentially what we're going to be talking about over the next five weeks, which we call the doctrines of grace, and essentially making this man-centered system of salvation. And so where these five points came from was really just defending against them being attacked. 
These, these are points that were systematized in response to that in 1618 and 1619 at the, uh, at, at the Synod of Dort in what's called the Canons of Dort. And if you ever want to Google that and read those, that's a fantastic thing to do. But, but just to say, this goes back to the Reformation, but when they got together at that synod, were they coming up with something new? No, they were saying, here's what we have been standing together with as, as those who are in this system of the Reformation. But even in the Reformation, back to the 1500s, were these things new then? Was Calvin making up something new? No. If you read what Calvin says about these things, you know who he quotes all the time? He quotes church fathers from a thousand years or more before him, especially guys like Augustine. You could call this not Calvinism, but Augustinianism, going all the way back to the 3rd, 4th century A.D. And, and, and Augustine, if you ask him, well, where did you get this stuff? Did you just make this up? You know what he would do? He would pull out his Bible you want to say, look, the apostles taught these things. We saw these things in, in the book of Romans that we went through for the past three years. Which is not that long, by the way, compared to how long it takes some people to go through Romans. And you can say, well, where did the apostles get these things? Well, Jesus. Jesus taught these things. In places like John chapter 6 and John chapter 10 and really kind of Matthew 11, kind of all over the place, Jesus taught these things. And you say, well, where did Jesus get these things? As though Jesus had to get them from somewhere. But you know what? Jesus was a great reader of the Old Testament. That's one of the things we're going to talk about in our Christology class this afternoon. He was a great reader of the Old Testament. And they're all over the Old Testament. <laughs> the doctrines of grace have been around from the very beginning. And they're rooted in eternity in God. And so these things are not man-made. If we, we want to we look in our Bible and see, hey, where does God display for us this grace? And it's all over the place. But as we see that we need grace, the first thing that we need to see is that we need grace. And that's where we start with in the doctrines of grace is the doctrine of total depravity. What is the doctrine of total depravity? Well, it's the doctrine. I'm just going to read this definition here. The doctrine that all human beings descended from Adam, raise your hand if you're one of those, okay? If you're not raising your hand, then you weren't listening. <laughs> all human beings descended from Adam are by nature sinful in every aspect of their being, unable to do anything that is good in God's sight, unable to properly understand the truth, and unable to choose to be saved. That's the doctrine of total depravity. Now I have to clarify up front, do you remain totally depraved after you are born again by the grace of the Holy Spirit? The answer to that is no. But we'll talk about that a little bit more at the end. For now, just know that what we're talking about is the natural state of man, the way that we come into the world, all of us in what we call original sin, or total depravity. Just to say it again, 1 Corinthians 2.14, our verse for today, and kind of what we're going to tee all of this off from as we go through this verse, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. First question to think about is, what is the natural person? 
when it says the natural person does not accept these things, well, what is that talking about? It's talking about the way that we're born. It's talking about just the natural us. The way that we've all come into the world. Those who are children of Adam, born by ordinary generation, as the old Reformed confessions would say. You see, what happened with Adam in the garden, Adam and Eve being the very first human beings, being the parents of all of us, our first parents as we sometimes say, God didn't make them sinners. God looked at all that He had made, including Adam and Eve, and said, it is good. But what happened, they sinned against God. It's that story that you know, probably, from Genesis 3, where they were deceived and tricked by Satan into disbelieving God, believing Satan instead, and disobeying God by eating of the one tree that he said that they couldn't eat from. Where sometimes people would hear that story and they'd say, well, that's not so bad. You know, we've heard of way worse sins than stealing an apple before and eating a piece of fruit you weren't supposed to eat. Well, do you understand what was going on here? These are human beings created in the image of God, knowing God personally, knowing their eternal holy creator and walking with him personally in the garden and then disbelieving him and sinning against him. That is damnable. And not just for them, but for us. We were all there. We are the human race that was all there, sinning in Adam. So this natural person, the way that we've come into the world, our natural state, is no longer holy, happy, and free like Adam before the fall. When I say the fall, I'm not talking about the autumn. I'm talking about that first sin, when mankind fell into sin in the Garden of Eden. Before the fall, there was holiness in man. But now all mankind has fallen into sin. Before the fall, there was happiness in man. No misery of any kind mixed in with it. But now, all mankind is plagued with misery. Before the fall, there was freedom in man. He had the free choice that sometimes people claim today that they have. That he could have done good or evil. But now, all mankind has fallen into bondage to sin. Slavery to sin. The way it's described in Ephesians chapter 2, which Mike read for us, and which we prayed from, is that, all, that, that we were, even us who believe, what we were by nature, the natural person, was children of wrath like the rest of mankind. By nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind, it says. That's, the Baptist Catechism describes this, saying all mankind by their fall lost communion with God, are under His wrath and curse, and so made liable to all miseries in this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. Now, it says in that passage, in Ephesians chapter 2, about the natural man, about the natural state of man, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead. 
Now, there's, there's different ways of looking at man in his natural state and his ability and his will, his, his potential for choosing God or not choosing God, his free will, as many might put it. Well, there, there's one way to look at that. It, 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 you, you could almost put it, and I've, I've used this before, but it's been a long time, so I'm going to use it again, okay? There's some who, if you're saying that the call to come to Jesus in faith is kind of like the call for somebody who's in bed to get out of bed, the alarm clock going off. There's some who would view that as though that, that the natural man is awake in bed, and just has to choose to get up rather than stay there. He could just as easily choose one or the other. Well, that system is called Pelagianism. The system that says, well, I could just as easily choose good or evil. I could just as easily choose faith in Jesus Christ or to reject Him and remain in my sin. That's Pelagianism. It was ruled heresy, I don't know, 1,500, 1,700 years ago, and yes, it is heresy. Don't think that way. We are not born blank slates that can go one way or the other. We are born sinners. There's some who go just a little step away from that into what we call semi-Pelagianism, and they would say, okay, well, that, that alarm clock going off, that call to trust in Jesus, it, 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 well, it, you, what you've got there is a person who's not just awake in bed, but like really, really groggy in bed. Like there's a really strong tug to stay there, a really strong tug to remain in their sin rather than come to Christ. And you just have to fight that urge and come out anyway. Well, that's, that's not much better. It's not much different. And then there's the Arminian system, which is, is a little bit of a step away from that, but all, not all the way. It's, it's like saying, okay, the alarm clock's going off, and what you've, you've got in bed is a dying person on their deathbed. And, and now God would hand you a cure and say, here is the pill that you can take to get well so that you can now get out of bed. Here is the, they call it prevenient grace. Here is just the, the tiniest little bit of grace enough so that now you have the free will to choose to either take it or not, to get up or not. But you know what that does? It still puts it on man. It's still got man alive. You know what Ephesians 2 says? It says you were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This, this is where we come to the doctrines of grace, or you might just call it what the Bible says, is, is that what you've got when that alarm clock goes off of the call to come to Christ is you've got a dead man lying in the bed, and he cannot do anything for himself. That's, that's what it says here in 1 Corinthians 2.14 too. The natural person does not accept the things of God. He is not able to. He was, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And, and you, don't, you don't just need, hey, an alarm clock to go off so you can choose to get up. You don't, you don't need to just like get over your grogginess. You don't need just like to say that I, I was on my deathbed and I need to take the medicine. You need a miracle worker to bring you from death to life. That's what this is about. We were totally depraved, and that depravity affected even our ability to understand, to will at all. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It takes a miracle, but God can do it. God can do it. It says in Genesis 6, 5, 
the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Or in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Which doesn't mean that his mother was caught up in some kind of a scandal. It just means that by the natural way that we come into the world, we are sinners. That's what that's talking about. We are totally depraved is the way that we describe this. It means affected by sin in all aspects of our being. Here's what the Baptist Catechism says about that. It says that the sinfulness of that estate whereunto man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the lack of original righteousness, and the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions, which proceed from it. That total depravity, sometimes it's called original sin, but that term gets misunderstood. What that is, it's that we're guilty of Adam's sin. We're not righteous to start with. We are corrupt in our whole nature. Body, soul, mind, heart, will, everything that there is has been affected by sin. And so that when we actually carry out sins... It's flowing from the natural state of man. It's not something unnatural to us to sin. Another way to put this is that we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Anyone who sins was already a sinner or they wouldn't have sinned. And that sin has permeated every aspect of human nature. You know what it flows out of is the heart. It flows out of the heart. Here's the way that that Jesus put this. I marked this. Mark 7. Jesus said in Mark 7.20, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. You know what? Even if they don't work their way to the outside, God sees the heart. I've heard Paul Washer use that illustration, and I sort of stole it and adapted it one time, but what if we, what if we could take the thoughts from your heart even this morning, even as redeemed sinners and put them up on the screen today and say, boy, you sure are a great person. Let's just put your heart up here and it's going to be something beautiful for us to reflect on as we worship God. And then we would get it up there and what would we do? And what would you do? And if you don't know Christ today, then boy, what is in your heart? Be honest before God about that because He already sees it all. By nature, children of wrath, totally depraved, Does the doctrine of total depravity, does that mean that no unbeliever can ever do anything that is in any way admirable or beneficial? Does it mean that unbelievers are always doing the maximum possible evil? No, it doesn't mean that. We we benefit every day from all kinds of things that unbelievers have done that are beneficial and admirable. I mean, even the fact that we are standing in here in this building with some heat and some electricity and things like that shows you that God has some common grace 
to bring about some good things even through depraved human beings. But what depravity means is that sin has polluted all of it. Those who are apart from Christ, they may do something that in some way is beneficial or admirable, but here's the question. Is it morally good in God's sight? And here's the answer from Isaiah 64.6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. That's why it says in Romans 8.8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's why it says in Romans 14.23, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is total depravity. By nature, children of wrath, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. I have to just really quickly go off a tangent here because it's a tangent that always comes up in a certain percentage of minds when we start talking about total depravity is, is that some would say, well, this must not be true because it would mean that if a baby dies, that the baby goes to hell. Well, I have to tell you, it doesn't mean that. And the reason it doesn't mean that is because we have some pretty good indications in Scripture that if a baby dies, that that baby goes to heaven. We don't have anything totally clear about that. We don't have the books of first and second babies to tell us about that. But we do have some hints and indications, and there's a great book by John MacArthur called Safe in the Arms of God that I would encourage you to get if you're interested in that subject. But here's what the doctrine of total depravity does mean in relation to babies. It means that even those little babies, precious, precious little babies that we love, are not blank slates, are not innocent, are still sinners by nature. And that if we're right about those indications and hints in Scripture that if they were to die as infants that they would go to heaven, that the reason they're going to heaven is not because they're innocent. They are not. They're guilty of Adam's first sin. They are going astray from birth, it says in the Scriptures. So if that is the case, then it's only by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, the same way that anybody can go to heaven, not because we are innocent, because we're not but only by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, purchased by Christ's death and applied by the Holy Spirit. All mankind have fallen into sin and are by nature children of wrath, and no one, not even little babies, makes it into heaven on the basis of being good. It's only on the basis of God's grace in Christ. Another thing that we see, if you point two, if you're following along, you're following along, I hope, that we see here in 1 Corinthians 2.14 is the bondage of the natural person's will. The bondage of the natural person's will. Not freedom of will, but bondage of will. It says here, he does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. What this is saying is that the natural person does not choose God does not choose to believe the gospel. Another way to put it is that he is unable to choose for himself to be saved. An example of this would be in Jeremiah 13.23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. Saying, look, there is just something by nature 
about where sinful man is that makes him not free to just do whatever you think of. In the same way that right now, I am not free to simply will to levitate up above this pulpit, although that would be really cool. I'm just not free to do that. It's not within my ability. And what it says in 1 Corinthians 2.14 is that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God and even says he is not able to understand them. It's put in Romans 8.7 that he is not able to do this. It says, uh, it, uh, yeah, it says, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to, to God's law. Indeed, it cannot... You're saying to yourself, well, no, no, surely, surely it can. Surely it can. Surely there's somebody out there who understands and seeks for God. Romans 3, quoting the Psalms, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Well, that's, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Next thing it says in the, the verse here in, in 1 Corinthians 2.14 is that these things of the Spirit of God are folly to him. Here's why he doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they are folly to him. They are foolish to him. Another way to put this is the reason he doesn't believe the gospel is because he doesn't believe the gospel. He just simply doesn't believe it. He looks at, at the gospel and says that is foolish that's for those naive people sitting in church who think they're good, and I know better. Or some variation of that. The fool says in his heart, there is no God, and may think he's very wise for saying so. It's kind of a circle. He doesn't believe because he doesn't believe, and there's nothing within that sinful heart that can break that vicious circle and make him start accepting what he thinks is foolish. What this means is that the sinful, natural human heart is a slave of sin. Not free to will this or to will that, to choose this, to choose that, but free only to do what it is in bondage to, which is sin. Here's how Jesus put it in John 8.33. They answered him, who's the they? It's these religious leaders who claimed to be children of God, claimed to be children of Abraham, would have put themselves up in a position of, of wanting others to imitate them and follow what they said. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? They protested. They said, we know we're already free. What are you talking about, Jesus? Why are you saying we need to be free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Romans chapter 6 goes into detail about this. About how apart from Christ, we were enslaved to sin. You may have felt free, but you know what you were free to do? You were free to do what was in your nature, which was sin, and you were in bondage to it. There's slavery there. Another aspect of this total depravity is not just, not just that slavery to sin, that slavery of the will, but a total spiritual inability. A total spiritual inability. That's why it says he is not able to understand. 
Uh, Jonathan Edwards made a, a really helpful distinction about this. Jonathan Edwards, the New England pastor back in the 1700s and one of the leaders of the, the Great Awakening, he, he made a distinction between what he called natural ability and moral ability. And I think it's a good way to think of it. Natural ability would be something like, okay, well, there is, there is a natural ability. It is possible. There is no force field stopping my body from doing this or that. And yet, there's a different thing called moral ability, which is, is it in my nature to do this or that? That's where you come down to the difference. That's where you come down to where God is actually holding everyone accountable for what they do. And yet, morally, they may not be able to do it. Let me just give you an illustration of this. I used this many years ago, and I'll use it again. I think I kind of sort of stole it from Paul Washer too. So, But just imagine you've got a vulture in a room. And on one side of the room, you've got a deer carcass. And on the other side of the room, you've got a kale salad. Is the vulture free to eat one or the other? Is the vulture able to eat one or the other? And the answer on a natural level, natural ability is yes. The vulture conceivably could bring himself over and put his beak into the bowl of kale salad and start eating that and stay away from the deer carcass. But what is the vulture? He's a vulture. He's not really free there. There is not really any possibility that, that he would choose the salad over the deer carcass. He is a vulture, and by nature he is going to go to the deer carcass. And he may feel free in all kinds of ways, but he's in bondage to his being a vulture. And the only thing that's going to change that is if there is some kind of a supernatural work to come down and to turn him from a vulture into a fashion model who would prefer to have a kale salad. But apart from that, it's just in his nature. He has an inability to do it. And that's what it says here about the natural man in response to the gospel, in response to the things of the Spirit of God. He is not able to understand. Why not? Well, it's because part of what happens with total depravity, part of what happens with the sin nature affecting all of our being, is it affects even our minds. It affects even our ability to think. Now, it may be possible that somebody who is, is not a believer could be able on some level to, to logically think through, to examine what the Bible teaches, to examine the doctrines that are taught by Christians, and to come to some sort of an intellectual understanding of the gospel, and to say, okay, here is what the system is. They believe this, they believe that. They believe that, uh, that we are sinners, and, and I don't believe that, but they believe that, and, and they believe that, we, um, uh, that, that Christ the Son of God came and in the flesh and lived and died and rose again, and that He did that for sinners, and, and that, that if you believe in Him, then you will have eternal life. You know, it's, it's conceivable that a, an unbeliever would be able to logically grasp and lay out these things. Although I will say, it's amazing how often they don't. It's amazing how often you tell them the gospel and they come back to you and say something like, I get it. People just need to be better people. 
so they can be right with God. It's amazing how darkened minds can be to just not even intellectually grasp the gospel. But even when they do intellectually grasp it, what it's saying here is that he is not able to understand it. He's not able to actually say, wait a second, this is the reality. This is who God is. This is who I am. This is who Christ is. This is what God has done for me. This is what God has called me to. The way that, that John Gill put it, I love John Gill, 1700s British Baptist pastor. He said, at most, the natural man can only know the literal and grammatical sense of these things of God, or only in theory, notionally and speculatively, but he cannot know them experimentally, meaning experiencing them. He cannot know them spiritually and savingly. Well, why not? It's because their hearts are darkened. It says in Ephesians 4.18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. It says it's by nature. It's due to the hardness of heart. You know what you, you can't do, by the way? You, you can't make your own heart stop being hard. It says in Ezekiel that God is the one who can take away the heart of stone and give a heart of flesh, but man can't do that. There's also, according to Scripture, an element of the work of Satan involved in the blinding of human hearts. It says in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And get this, the Bible also says that God, in his judgment upon sinners, is even involved himself in blinding them. It says in Isaiah 44:18, they know not, nor do they discern, for he, that's God, has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. By the way, you hear that and you say, is God evil? No. No. The judge of all the earth will do what is right, and it is judgment upon judgment. It is giving them over to their sinful selves. And in adding upon this, it says in Romans 3, as we saw just a minute ago, none is righteous, not one. It says no one understands. No one seeks God. No one understands. It says here that these things are only spiritually discerned. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 2.14. They are spiritually discerned. What does that mean? It means that in order for somebody to come from darkness to light, to go from having a heart, hard heart resistant to the gospel to then having a heart of flesh to believe in Christ, it must be a work of the Spirit. These things are spiritually discerned, not naturally discerned. This is what Jesus preached in John chapter 3. When Nicodemus came to him, who was one of the Pharisees, who I hope that Nicodemus was saved, but at this time at least, Nicodemus was not saved. He was a religious leader. He, he was in a place where he was well-respected. He, he would have had probably the entire Old Testament memorized. And, and a teacher, you know, may, maybe many other things memorized as well to help teach. But Jesus said to him, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, this is John 3, 5, unless one is born of the water, of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. You, 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 I hope you catch what's going on here. Jesus is saying to someone who has a thorough learning and training in the Word of God, even you, Nicodemus, even you, religious leader, cannot discern spiritual things apart from a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to make you new. You must be born again of the Spirit. Sometimes when people hear Jesus saying you must be born again, they think, well, well, this is a, a command that you must make yourself born again. That's not possible. You didn't make yourself born the first time, did you? And you can't make yourself born the second time either. When somebody believes in Christ, they are not then forcing God's hand to cause them to be born again because they have now believed. What's happening instead is the other way around. When you believe in Christ, it is because God has already done that supernatural work to make you born again. We'll talk about that more when we get to the I in TULIP. But that's what this is saying. They do not accept these things, the things of the Spirit of God, because they are spiritually discerned. The way Jesus put it in John 6.44 is, No one can come to me. That's total depravity. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Unless God gives spiritual discernment. And if the Father who sent me draws him, I will raise him up on the last day. Amazing. Amazing. That's grace. There is hope for depraved sinners. That hope for depraved sinners is found in Ephesians 2. It's found lots of places in Scripture, but right after it said that they were by nature children of wrath, the whole of mankind by nature, it says, but God, it's talking to those who have been born again, it says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Sinner. Jesus came, and Jesus preached this message to us. that says, love your enemies. It's an amazing thing that Jesus practiced what he preached. And one of the ways in which he has loved his enemies is to actually go to the point of death for sinners. And we're not putting this as though they're, they're sinning in some way over there where he just sees, oh no, you've gotten yourself into trouble, I'll come help. Sinning against him. We were his enemies. Our, our sin was an act of enmity against God. And one of the ways in which God has loved His enemies is that Christ, for all of His elect, has come and actually stood in the place of these enemies 
to be crushed for our iniquities. We're going to talk about that when we get to the L. All right? But this is the good news. God loves to demonstrate the glory of His grace in saving depraved sinners through faith in Jesus Christ. He loves it. And this same Jesus who stood up in Matthew chapter 11 and said, you're all depraved, I'm paraphrasing, you're all depraved, and none of you can possibly come to God unless I choose you. The next thing he says is, come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And so do it. Come to him. If you do come to him, one of the things you're finding out today is it's not because you were a good person. It's not because you had the ability to come to him or had the ability to choose him. It's not because you were the kind of person who would come to Jesus. If you come to Jesus, it's because God has given you grace, eternal grace. And so come to him. If he is calling you in power by the Spirit, respond. Come to Jesus, and He will give you eternal life as opposed to what we naturally deserve, which is eternal destruction. You may say to yourself, okay, well, I've been running so, so hard away from God. I know how deeply depraved I am. He can't take somebody like me. Yes, He can. It's to the glory of His grace when He takes somebody like you. Or you may say to yourself, I don't think I really need this. I'm, I've got a pretty orderly life. I do good things. I volunteer. I do things like showing up to church. And, and, uh, and I don't think I, you know, I mean, I, I don't know that this depravity stuff really, uh, really fits me. I'm a pretty good person. You're fooling yourself. You are fooling yourself. And you, you think you're doing good things, but you're doing them in service of Satan and sin. And it's just like an FBI mole showing up to work every day and doing good work, but being on the payroll of the Russians. That's what you're doing if you're saying to yourself, I don't think I'm that depraved. I don't think I need this. You are in the service of Satan. You are in bondage to sin, and you are headed for hell, except that God can make you alive and cause you to repent of your dead works and to live to Him in Christ. So there is hope for depraved sinners. Come to Jesus. There's some implications of this as well. If you look at the, the last thing, implications of total depravity in life and society. I'll give you the top six. How about that? I'm going to count them down. Number six. <laughs> One of the things that's an implication of the doctrine of total depravity is that we need to keep human sin in mind when we are building and maintaining human institutions. And what am I talking about? I'm talking about institutions like the family, institutions like the church, institutions like business, like government, schools, whatever else it may be. If we set things up in such a way that we just assume, oh, well, this group of people over here in this part of the institution are good. They don't need accountability. Guess what's going to eventually happen? The depravity of man is going to come out. This is especially going to be the case 
If you're thinking in the short term, if you're thinking to yourself, for example, in a church, I, I saw an example of this in, in a church's documents not very long ago that were not well written. That they, they had planted this church with great, great respect for the pastor who was planting it. And so they wrote all kinds of things into their documents about how the, the church needs to be in total submission to this senior pastor. And they, they need to, you know, the, the, it, it's the job of the church to follow the senior pastor's vision. It is the job of the elders to submit to the senior pastor's vision. All these kinds of things. And maybe the, the current guy, maybe he's great. But you know what? The church is probably going to outlive that guy. And then there'll be somebody else who, you know, they're going to try to hire somebody great. But do you know what Paul says in Acts 20? to the elders of the church of Ephesus with Timothy there in the middle of them? He says, even from among your own selves, there will rise up wolves. We have to be aware of the doctrine of total depravity, even in setting up how our institutions will be run for generations to come, that there are systems of accountability. Another aspect of this is government. Where, where we would look at, well, how, how does this apply to government? There are some well-meaning Christians right now who are pushing this vision of government that, that almost says, well, if we could just get all of the good people in, then we could kind of tear down the system that we have and rebuild it in such a way that we always are going to have the good people running all the good things. Well, do you know what that's going to lead to? Even if you manage to get all the good people in right now, there's going to be another generation and they're going to be depraved. I've heard it said before that every society is invaded every generation by barbarians, and they are our children. And we have to keep in mind, if we put authoritarian power in the hands of good people, eventually it's going to be in the hands of bad people. But again, we ought not to even think in those terms, even the people that we think are good people, by nature, are depraved. And who knows what can come out of that. There has to be systems of accountability built into it. That's number six. Number five, implication of total depravity in life and society, don't affirm the desires of other people's flesh. Don't affirm the desires of other people's flesh. This is the big thing that that is floating in our society that is causing the transformation of morality, this huge cultural shift that has been happening under our feet, it seems like just for a short time, but really for a long time building up, is this idea that human beings are basically good and that we need to affirm that and that we need to affirm each human being in their feeling of individuality and self-expression. And it almost sounds good. If you, if you ask that question, are, are people basically good or basically bad? Um, it it's kind of sounds like the positive, encouraging thing to say, well, yeah, people are basically good. Yeah, I'm going to look for the good in everybody, and yeah, that sounds great. But you know what the Bible says? They go forth from birth speaking lies. They are depraved. They are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And, and the push by our society right now and by our culture in all kinds of ways, is to say, look at every individual 
and what that individual loves on the inside and how that individual wants to express themselves and affirm it. And you know what the Bible says? Do not affirm it. Uh, Romans 1.32, which has, has gone in Romans 1, he went through and talked about all kinds of, all manner of unrighteousness is the term that it used, and it listed out some of the most popular sins that our culture would tell us right now are not sins, such as homosexuality, that that was just some sort of an expression of individual identity is what our, our culture would say. Well, it says in Romans 1.32, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Don't be among those who give approval to these things just because the culture says, let's celebrate what's inside everybody. What's inside everybody is depravity. You must be born again. The way you were born was wrong. Number four of our top six ways to apply this to life and society, don't follow the desires of your flesh. Don't follow the desires of your flesh. Here's some good news. Okay, After coming to faith in Christ, you are no longer dead in your sin. Praise God. After coming to faith in Christ, you are actually able, through our great high priest Jesus, to present pleasing offerings before God. You are able to please God. But what that doesn't mean is that suddenly all of your desires are holy. The world says, embrace who you are on the inside, but God says, put to death what is earthly in you. It says in Romans 7.20 that even though we have now been redeemed from sin and we're no longer defined as sinners, but now defined as saints, that there is still sin that dwells in us. We have to put it to death. We have to put on Christ. Don't follow the desires of your flesh. Number three in our top six ways, lay down your pride. Lay down your pride. If there's anything inside you that has some amount of pride about how holy you are, about the fact that you are a believer and that guy over there is not, about anything, the doctrine of total depravity, when we come down face to face with it, the doctrine of what every single one of us was by nature before coming to faith in Christ, and even the indwelling sin that we still fight today, that ought to just show us it is 100% the grace of God that I am anything before His eyes other than crushed. So lay down your pride. It's going to humble us toward God and toward man when we properly understand that there was nothing that we contributed to our salvation. Number two in our top six, if you have loved ones who seem unlikely to believe, remember that you were just as unlikely to believe. And keep on sharing the gospel with them. Keep on praying for their salvation. God only saves totally depraved sinners. It's the only kind of people he saves. He doesn't save people that in our opinion we think, well, they're a little bit less depraved, maybe they'll listen to the gospel. No, they're not. And when you see somebody who looks like they are just running so hard away from God, whether it's in their behavior or their intellectual beliefs or their love of worldly things or whatever it is, and you say, well, that's, that's probably not somebody who would listen. Well, naturally, no, they're not, and neither were you. But we can tell them anyway. 
If God is going to save them, he's going to use the gospel to do it, the power of God unto salvation. So keep on preaching the gospel to unlikely people because we were all unlikely people. And then the number one thing to do, the number one implication of the doctrine of total depravity, if you are not yet a believer today, stop fooling yourself into thinking that there is something in you that you can do to make yourself righteous or to earn God's favor. I don't know how many times I have heard unbelievers say, I think I recognize that what you're telling me about Jesus is right, but let me get some things straight in my life before I come to that church. Let me clean myself up before I come to God. You can't. So stop waiting for that. Bring God all of your filth. Because that's what Jesus died for, was filth. Bring it to God. Lay it down. Ask God, forgive me. Ask God to grant you repentance. Ask God to grant you faith. Know that He already knows the depth of your depravity, and He is not sitting around waiting for you to become good before He would save you. He only saves sinners. And so come to Him in your sin and receive grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for saving us by Your grace. I pray that if there's any ounce of pride still left in our hearts, that You would strike it down, not for our harm, but for our good and for Your glory as we would rejoice in the righteousness of Christ that's given to us through faith in Him. Father, I pray for those who are are still lost in their depravity today, whether they feel like they're good people or not. I pray that you would take hold of their hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who comes and convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment. Would you please convict of those things? And would you please turn them to the grace of Jesus and save them by your grace? And God, for us who are in Christ, thank you for your grace. And I pray that as we go through these doctrines that we would... Do exactly what Ephesians 1 says over and over that we ought to do in response to them to praise you for your glorious grace. Thank you for that grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.